Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. This is David Rothkopf, your host, and I am somewhere out there at an undisclosed location, but I'll give you a hint. There is snow everywhere. In Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, we have at Georgetown University, Rosa Brooks. And we have at the Center for American Progress, their vice president for national security, Kelly Magsiman. And in London, England, almost in tomorrow as we tape this thing, well ahead of all of us, as everyone knows, we have the lilting tones of Corey Shockey of IISS. Uh, I want to start in a place where we probably have never started this podcast before, and that is focusing on the successes of Donald Trump's foreign policy and national security presidency. Um, and one of the ones that is most surprising to me is this breakthrough, this unexpected breakthrough in relations between the United States and Russia. After all, Russia attacked our democracy. They attacked our closest ally in the United Kingdom. They've been violating international law serially for as long back as we can remember. As recently as a couple of days ago, Russians and Americans both were saying this relationship is at a low point. And yet the president of the United States has announced an invitation to Vladimir Putin of Russia to come to the United States, to come to the White House. This is not something that our close allies or former allies like Mexico have even been able to arrange. This is this is a real remarkable turnabout. And Corey, as you are actually situated right now much closer to Russia than the rest of us, perhaps you can give us an insight into how did we get into this wonderful place and how is it that Donald Trump <laughs> is such a foreign policy genius? <laughs> Well, the president mistakenly believes that he's a fantastic negotiator, that he's so magnetic a personality that exposure to him will produce unprecedented breakthroughs in Americans' relationships with other countries. Parenthetically, uh, President Obama seemed to believe the exact same thing. And by the way, they are both wrong. Um, that I think President Trump's previous meeting with President, with the Russians, the one where he exposed uh, Israeli intelligence sources uh, and, um, well, let's leave it at that. He exposed Israeli intelligence sources, uh, produced nothing for the United States. It didn't prevent the Russians from continuing to assault our country's information networks and possibly uh, our 
uh, surveying our electrical, our electoral process and our electrical grids and other ways that they could do danger and harm to our country. It didn't prevent the Russians from uh, having Russian surrogates attack American forces in Syria. It didn't prevent the Russians from uh, committing an act of WMD terror on British soil. And it doesn't appear to constrain Vladimir Putin in any way at all. So I see zero evidence that President Trump's perception of the value of high-level summit meetings does any good. And of course, as in the North Korea case as well, it creates enormous vulnerabilities because the president doesn't appear to have any idea what he's talking about. Well, Kelly, I could go a step further. You could say that inviting the president uh, of, of Russia to the White House might even be seen as a reward. And you might think the message that it sent was, well, gee, if you get this kind of reward for trying to undermine American democracy and attacking our friends, perhaps if he actually attacked California and invaded it, he might get a state dinner out of it. Um, and you were... <laughs> You, you worked at the National Security Council for a long time. Uh, is yeah, this yeah. the kind of recommendation that you think might have been made in another White House? You know, I, I couldn't imagine it, uh, frankly. Uh, to Corey's point, usually, you know, summits come after a culmination of a lot of work uh, and you, you expect to get a good deliverable, a policy deliverable, some sort of big announcement, an arms deal, pick your pick your issue. And and for it to be happening, particularly at this this moment in time, uh, on the heels of them, you know, attacking our closest ally, and also, by the way, they launched the Satan too, which I think is a fabulous name for an ICBM. Um, you know, just last week. So this is all kind of the atmosphere uh, is very strange timing for for me. It's sort of the cherry on top. It's almost as if you know, if you weren't paying attention, you would start to wonder whether you had a Russian agent in the in the Oval Office, but. Um, you know, again, I think to to Corey's point, you almost might think that one might think that uh, if they were paying attention. Um, you know, I, I think um, you know to the broader point about whether or not uh, the Trump administration, President Trump, are adequately addressing uh, the threat of Russia to our democracy, to our allies. You know, in my in my view, a Russian election, a Russian election meddling was really kind of a new Sputnik moment uh, for the United States. And I think we essentially got caught on our back foot with that. And I think now, instead of figuring out how to shoot the moon, uh, Donald Trump is trying to figure out how to, uh, you know, get a ride on the Sputnik satellite. I mean, I think it's 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 strange to me. I think the timing is strange. I'm, I'm sort of opening, sort of wondering to myself whether or not uh, he'll have the summit before or after he fires Bob Mueller. Um, things like that are popping into my head. Wow. You better <laughs> Sorry. Um, uh, what's popping into your head, Rosie? You know, <laughs> I, I was, I've been reading tweets because, you know, that's how we communicate with the White House these days. And, and the messages sent out by the tweets have sent a very clear picture to me of what the president thinks our attitudes ought to be. For example, in the 24 hours before we uh, we taped this episode, the president attacked uh, Amazon, large American company, uh, Mexico, 
which is our closest neighbor. He attacked them really hard. And on Easter, by the way, showing a great deal of sensitivity. Uh, it, it was April Fool's Day as well, David. Oh, yeah, well, that's a good point. But he didn't, I don't think he was thinking of that. And also the Justice Department. He didn't just attack the Justice Department and the FBI. He attacked the Justice Department by putting justice in quotes in his tweet. You know, <laughs> quotes, Justice Department. Which, which, you know, so I, I'm guessing that those are the enemy, the Justice Department, the FBI, the Mexicans, and Amazon. And to show what we really reward, we're going to go and give the Russians a big uh, party. What do you think? I mean, am I getting the right message? Uh, I mean, as ever, trying to make sense of Donald Trump is a is a fruitless endeavor. I, I sometimes think that you know, that I don't know. I'm not quite sure what the right um, old board game would be, but it's like he he sits there and he spins this spinner and it says, you know, who are you going to attack today? Who's going to be your friend today? And it's just sort of random and and uh, not not entirely random because it's path dependent. Once he once he starts attacking Amazon or or the FBI or whatever, he likes to keep at it. Um uh, but but there is a little bit of randomness to this. And and as with anything random, it's like the old adage about, you know, a broken clock is right twice a day. Every now and then he's even going to say something that is, in fact, accurate or do something that is, in fact, helpful. But usually it's by accident rather than by design. Um, it, it, I think one of the the main stories of the Trump administration thus far has been the degree to which. Donald Trump is at war with his own administration in every possible way. Right. You know, he's going after his own Justice Department. Um, you know, he he is busily trying to undermine his own national security advisors and military advisors at every turn. The phone call in which he apparently came up with the bright idea of suggesting a White House visit for Vladimir Putin is also, of course, the phone call in which we we know that he was given detailed written instructions for what to say and what not to say during the call, including apparently receiving the written instruction in all block capitals, do not congratulate Putin on his recent election victory. And he went ahead and said, congratulations, et cetera. Um, so so it's just, the weirdest just, thing ever, right? But it's not just et cetera. He said, congratulations, I'll see your congratulations and I'll raise your White House visit. <laughs> Pretty much. Um, no, I mean, it's it's a uh, on the one hand, um, you know, students of bureaucracy and the executive branch know that in every administration there there is some skirmishing between the president who tries to impose his will on the unruly, sprawling executive branch and the. Uh, bureaucracy itself and the cabinet members who who often may have some independent political power base and are skirmishing a little bit behind the scenes. You know, to some extent that always happens. But who would ever have thought that the president would be would be directly contradicting and undermining his own <laughs> handpicked advisors over and over and over again on issue after issue? Well, that's a, that's an interesting point. Well, let's let's sort of drill down into a couple of these recent developments, and and let's for a moment try to resist the impulse, or I will resist my impulse towards um, snark and get into something a little bit more substantive and serious. I was pretty shocked uh, at the president's uh, vituperative attacks on the Mexicans uh, over the past couple of days, in which he said. Uh, there will be no DACA. He blamed it on the Democrats without noting, of course, that he was the one who killed DACA. 
uh, and that the Mexicans really uh, have been failing uh, in their uh, uh, responsibilities with regard to uh, immigrants into the United States uh, and protecting our borders. That that was an early tweet. In a later tweet, he said, "Well, the Mexicans have tough laws. We we have laws undermined by Democrats, and and that's really the problem." But it looked to me like he made a switch over the weekend. Maybe because he spent the weekend with Stephen Miller. Maybe because he spent the week, you know, had saw Sean Hannity over the weekend or Corey Lewandowski or some of these other people. But it looked like he's saying, "I'm going to double down." going after immigrants, going after refugees. That's my bread and butter. I'm in trouble. Let's go and sound the alarms. You know, he said the country is being stolen. I mean, incredibly hyperbolic uh, statement. Meanwhile, over in, you know, the kind of uh, small bastions of sanity we find in this world, uh, at The Atlantic, Corey Shockey writes an article talking about the importance of immigrants to the United States. Uh, and I thought this would be a good chance. Corey, to... you traitor. Traitor. Why are you, why do you, so you left and now you're trying to steal America. <laughs> this is her, this is Corey saying, I want to come home. <laughs> I do how miss long the cerulean blue of my California sky. It's true. I painted my office at the double I double S, the color of a California sky. That's, um, that's really beautiful. But don't worry, Corey. No matter how long you're over there, you will never be an immigrant. You are one of ours. You can come home. You don't have to read articles like this. Oh, David, nobody mistakes me for anything but American. I'm like Annie Oakley walking down the street here. It could be, so, could be that outfit that you insist on wearing. but so Or the uh, special black powder that I carry, right? Right. One of the re Annie Oakley thought the reason she was so precise a marksman mm. was because of the quality of the gunpowder she used, not because of her magnificent aim. So mm. with that stated for the record, I will thank you, David, for giving me the opportunity to talk about the Atlanta Cardinal. It's actually an excerpt from my book about hegemonic transition between Britain and the United States. And this felt like the time to highlight the point about the foreign policy value of immigrants in the United States for exactly the reasons that you say. When the president acts as though refugees are a danger to this country, when he flat out says that terrorists are streaming across our borders, when in fact not a single person who has been arrested for terrorism in these United States came across our Mexican border. It, it, it's, um, I, I worry very much that the president is, might have the ability to shape people's attitudes to the detriment of our country. And the story that I tell in the Atlantic piece is about how in the most vulnerable period in the history of the United States, that is during the American Civil War, uh, the British government toyed three different times before 1863 with recognizing the Confederacy, which would have broken the blockade on Southern ports, ruined the prospect of the Union militarily winning the Civil War. And what stayed Prime Minister Palmerston's hand on all those occasions was the worry that 
Irish and Scottish Americans um, would had such a powerful influence over their relatives still in Ireland and Scotland that it would make it more difficult for Britain to govern Scotland and Ireland. And the second big thing that stayed Palmerston's hand was that he worried that associating himself with the aristocratic slave-holding South would increase pressure for expansion of the franchise within Britain to the standards of the Union North of the United States. So our ability, because of immigration and because of our political creed, to affect the the foreign policy choices of the most powerful country in the world were precisely because our immigrant population was our strength. It gave us the ability to play in their domestic politics in a way no other country could because immigrant Americans became Americans. Well, that's a very powerful message. Um, You know, Kelly, as I think about it, and I think about the president doubling down on this, uh, it seems to me there there may also be a domestic policy problem here, and that is, uh, or a domestic political problem here, and that a lot of Americans are immigrants or know they're from immigrants, and the president somehow seems to think that he played this to his advantage under the special circumstances of 2016. But at this point, there's there's very unlikely to be any large groups of Latinos who say, you know, Maybe this guy Trump is is really for. Us. He's our guy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it does just seems it seems unlikely. Whether whereas there were some the last time around, uh, it you know he's doubling down across the board, including by the way, a recent uh, decision to include citizenship question for the first time since 1950 or something in the U.S. Census, which is going to send a message to lots of people about these these potential divisions. Do you think this can actually get worse? And if so, how do you think it can get worse? I mean, I do think it can get worse. Um, I was very happy to see Corey's article. I thought it was uh, very well done. I would just add one point to it. I mean, not only are uh, immigrants good for American foreign policy, they're also really good for the American economy uh, and have been a source of innovation for the United States. If you look at a number of the top CEOs, they're immigrants uh, from around the world. So... You know, I think that's one point that's lost. But Trump, you know, he has tapped into this sort of nativist uh, sort of argumentation around immigration and security. And as I look out uh, through the election cycle, I do worry about uh, sort of what what that plays into and what fears um, that starts to to bring forward in, in Americans. And I think he thinks it works for him. He thinks it works for his base. Um, but again, to your point, he's not playing the long game. This is just about Donald Trump playing to his base. Uh, it's not about the future of the Republican Party. It's not about the future of the United States and polity. Um, it's really all about Donald Trump and what he thinks works for him. Well, Rosa, you know, I, I think, you know, we've talked about this a little bit in the past, but the this idea of nativism seems to be the essence of Trumpism. And that if you look at Trump foreign policy, you see nationalism, nativism driving it, whether it's immigration policy, refugee policy. This year we'll have fewer refugees taken into the United States and fewer Muslim refugees than at any time since the modern refugee policy was actually established in this country. Um, 
but also in terms of trade policy and you know the president's trade policy is already kicking up we're now getting the news of the chinese retaliation to it and the president in his attacks on mexico said we're going to take away nafta that's how we'll punish those people they're getting rich on us uh and and in area after area where most of what you see is incoherence time and time again nativism nationalism is what it's about uh and you know i'm just wondering is is that what you're seeing too and and again, as we get closer to an election, um, where does it take us? That's the rhetoric of nativism and nationalism, but it in and of itself, it's also completely incoherent, not to mention completely hypocritical. Obviously, to mention just a few points, um, Donald Trump is the son of an immigrant who arrived, his mother arrived in the United States herself as a result of the so-called chain immigration that Trump so routinely decries. She was a, a manual worker, a, a maid, essentially. She was able to come to the United States uh, because her sister was already here. And were it not for, I suppose you could say that's an argument against chain immigration. Had we not had it, we might not have Donald Trump, but let's leave that aside. Um, you know, his, his wife is an immigrant who may or may not have managed to get permanent residency through slightly uh, uh, dubious circumstances and some degree of political influence on Trump's part. Uh, and Trump himself, his fortune was gained in part through extensive and often somewhat dubious business dealings uh, all over the globe. You know, that, that he is a, a fundamentally a product of a globalized economy, a beneficiary of America's openness to immigration and openness to other economies, other states, et cetera, in every possible way, you know. And the idea that somehow Donald Trump represents some purer form of nativism or nationalism is just ludicrous to start with and, and inherently contradictory. And that's before we even get to all of the ways in which the the uh, uh, forms of protectionism uh, that Trump has, has unveiled and the immigration policies are are just bad for America. You know, the, I mean, I think the I get the appeal to to certain group of voters, right? The world is a scary place. It's been changing a lot. The economy has been changing. Uh, it's it's culturally dislocating and confusing to go into the town you grew up in and pass people on the street who are speaking a language that you don't understand. You know, I, I get the emotions of where did the jobs go? Where did the opportunities go? Who are these people who I don't understand? I'm scared. I'm mad. And Trump's rhetoric, I think, certainly appeals to that and taps into it. But but needless to say, and, and, and Kelly and Corey have already articulated some of the reasons for this, the, the policies, to the extent that there are a coherent set of policies, and, and that's pretty minimal, frankly, uh, the, the policies themselves uh, are likely to, in every way, hurt the very people they're designed to appeal to. For, for for the simple reason that whether we like it or not, whether we want it or not, we do live in a globalized world. Uh, you know, it just it is what it is. We can't wish our way out of it. It's all of the things Trump is trying to do are just going to hurt the U.S. and hurt the very people who have voted for him. Well, Corey, you know, one of the things about the rest of the world is it may not um, 
understand Trump, but it but but it seems to understand how to respond to Trump. Um, and you know, I was struck today by looking at where China is responding to the trade attack on the United States uh, by the United States, the tariff uh, 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 lifting of Trump, and they are responding on $3 billion worth of US imports. Um, and they're hitting 130-ish odd uh, products, uh, ranging from pork to meat and to fruit to steel pipes. Now, I was thinking about that, and then I thought, well, where does pork come from? And then, and I mean, I knew it came from pigs, by the way, but where do pigs come from? <laughs> the Midwest is what you're going to conclude from this? Right. Well, they come from <laughs> Iowa, actually. The biggest export of Iowa, or one of the biggest export, is, is pigs. And, and the Chinese know that the U.S. presidential system makes an early stop in Iowa, uh, and that if they put a couple of years of pressure on Iowa pig farmers, Trump's foreign policy arguments about winning a trade war are going to seem a little bit more difficult. Similarly, where does the meat come from? Where does fruit come from, et cetera, et cetera? And I'm just wondering, you know, they seem pretty canny in how they're doing it. They're just starting on $3 billion worth of imports. They're in a good position to turn up the heat. Uh, and this could also alter the perception in the United States uh, of the merits of, of Trump's approaches, no? Oh, I think you're exactly right, David, on all three counts. It's been First, so long since I've heard those words. <laughs> David, you're exactly right. Thank you. <laughs> um, on the first count, that the Chinese are showing their deafness at American domestic politics by specifically targeting um, American exports that will be politically costly to the president. Second, um, the president has said on at least one occasion, and I think several more, that trade wars are short and easy to win. And those are the words of a man who's never fought a trade war. Um, and third, uh, it seems not to have occurred to the president of the United States that these economic uh, retaliatory sanctions from the Chinese will just start to hit people's pocketbooks uh, as they start to think about who they want to vote for in the midterm congressional elections. So I think the country, the president's about to get a very expensive education in economics. And we American voters are about to be reminded that if you vote for idiots, idiots run the country. Whoa. That's. <laughs> Whoa. I was going to add one thing on, on to that. I mean, I think, uh, you know, the Chinese are not stupid. Uh, they know how to play us, um, but they're also entering into negotiations. So the the, the sort of reciprocal tariffs that they announced uh, today didn't include one really big one, which was soybean, um, which is really the, the, the cannon uh, in the arsenal for them. And so they're also in a negotiation with the Trump administration right now to, so that the Trump administration doesn't follow through on some of the bigger um, tariffs that they've been talking about. So that the Chinese are, are very deft at this, uh, and I worry that uh, the president is not, and we're going to end up on the losing end. Well, let me, I was going to ask you a question, because um, I do have two questions about how this plays out in terms of Asia. Uh, and I know that you had that brief uh, during your time uh, at the Pentagon. And 
I, I you know, I, I thought it was kind of interesting that the president said that he wasn't going to do the Korea trade deal till after the North Korea negotiations were done as a form of leverage. And and you're a professional, <laughs> whereas I'm just sitting here in a house in New Jersey. So I'm I'm thinking that you probably understood this because to me this evokes Rosa's earlier comment about incoherence. <laughs> a little bit. I did I did the the classic face palm uh, when I heard that. Um, you know, he he's making linkages between issues with our allies. Uh, is playing hardball with our allies while we're, you know, having to enter into a negotiation with the North Koreans on nuclear weapons. It, it doesn't it makes no sense to me, uh, you know, and, and allies like even South Korea. I mean, South Korea is very politically astute. They know how to work the president and the administration to to do what they need to do. But this is going to leave a, a lasting mark uh, on their impressions of the United States. And I think that's the part that worries me the most on the other end of this. It's not about one particular trade deal. Um, that we mess up with South Korea. It's really about the lasting impression uh, that the Trump presidency is going to leave on our reliability in the world. Yeah, well, and clearly, you know, that it's going to take many, have work on many levels. You know, Rosa, when the president was talking about how the Mexicans are getting rich off of NAFTA, I was thinking, well, so are a lot of Americans getting rich off of NAFTA. And I went to the United States Trade Representatives website because I, like all of our listeners, I'm a nerd, and that's the first thing you do, you know. And I started I started reading the entry on the USTR website, which is actually associated with, you know, the Trump administration, about the trade deficit with Mexico. And one of the things that set up at the top of the website was that the trade numbers don't actually mean anything. You can't interpret them because there's so much cross-border trade and how we count the cross-border trade is different from country to country. So one man's surplus could look like another man's deficit and vice versa. Um, and they're real, you know, it really helps to know these things. And it doesn't seem like anybody in this administration. <laughs> Can't anybody here play this game? You're you're making me think of the the amazing uh uh retelling by Donald Trump of his exchanges on trade deficits and surpluses with Canada's Justin Trudeau, <laughs> in which Trump, by his own admission, uh, on while talking to Justin Trudeau, realizes that he has no idea whether the U.S. in fact has a trade <laughs> deficit or a trade surplus with Canada, but he decides that he's going to say that we have a trade deficit just to sort of fuck with Justin Trudeau, who, of course, is very confused by that statement from the president of the United States, since, in fact, uh, by, you know, every normal form of accounting, we have a trade surplus. Um, and so Trudeau gently tries to say, well, actually, Donald, not so. And Trump, completely unabashed by the fact that he's just made something up, sort of giggles and says, well, who cares? Maybe, maybe not. It doesn't matter. And and then proceeds to make up a bunch of other stuff about trade between the U.S. and Canada. So, you know, you are a nerd uh, and God bless you. You go off and you attempt to get something which we used to refer to as as actual true facts. Um, 
when you're trying to figure out the answer to something. Donald Trump, you know, even leaving aside the issue of whether there, there may be some complexity, it, certainly in the case of particular countries such as Mexico, where, where there's just so many interactions of so many different kinds, there may be some complexity in, in determining, you know, what are we going to count for purposes of deciding whether we say there's a trade deficit or not and so forth. Even leaving that aside, it sort of doesn't matter if there's complexity because Donald Trump is not interested in complexity and Donald Trump is not interested in information. Right, right. No, in fact, he, he has no concern for it. it. He is literally, he opens his mouth and outflows a torrent of bullshit all the time. And so he'll say things like, he'll refer to dumb immigration laws without actually knowing what the laws are. Or Mexicans are pouring into the country to take advantage of DACA, even though DACA... Right. The eligibility for DACA is limited to people who entered the country in 2012. So there is no way to take advantage of DACA in 2018 if you enter the country in 2018. Uh, but it doesn't seem to matter. And this gets me to a core question, Corey, on a regular basis on, you know, in the Twitterverse and when I go on TV shows or when I'm out there doing conferences, somebody inevitably will stand up earnestly and they'll say, now, you know, Criticizing Trump this way is elitist, and this is the the problem that that you know led to his election in the first place, is that you don't understand Americans and you don't understand that Trump had a genius for what real Americans care about, and I, I have to say Trump has no genius. Trump speaks complete nonsense. He's completely incoherent. He's completely incompetent. He can't manage anything. His administration is a shambles of a shambles. It is, it literally, you know, it, it, there are goats in a, in a, in a, in a barnyard across, is out in America saying, don't call this a goat fuck. We really know what we're doing and he doesn't. <laughs> um, you know, and, and you know, you, you start getting, you know, it, the impression that sooner or later somebody's got to actually call this for what it is and stop trying to see genius in it. I keep thinking of the book, um, where the, well, the movie. So I book, think you just the Jersey, did, David. The Jersey Kaczynski book with, uh, you know, where it was turned into the Peter Sellers movie, where, you know, where Peter Sellers plays Chauncey. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, Chauncey yeah, the Gardener. Yeah, right. Um, and he's John C. Gardner, and he's an idiot, but he becomes, pre you know, the advisor to presidents because so, people want to interpret his idiocy as intelligence. And I just, shouldn't we start calling this for what it is? So two things, David. First, I think um, you and many others have been calling it for what it is all the way along. I don't think there's any great new need to do it. I think a lot of people have have been aghast from the start at President Trump. What I noticed about him, as you guys know, I sailed on the pirate ship McCain in 2008. And one of the things I noticed about Governor Palin when she became John's vice presidential candidate, uh, I also believe I see in President Trump, which is that they're not smart. You're exactly right. But there's this sort of um, primordial uh, <laughs> uh, predatory way of connecting with people's fears and anxieties. And 
Sarah Palin was good at that. She was more positive than the president is. But President Trump is also good at that. So I don't disagree with folks who, who assess that part of President Trump's popularity is that elites like us have not been empathetic enough to the concerns people who aren't benefiting from the globalization Rosa so, so aptly described. Well, I hear it from my cousins in Ohio. My sister and I both hear it from my cousins in Ohio. But the point is, and what I think, the president's not a genius. You have to have some political skill to get elected president of the United States, though. And he did. I think he crested the wave at the moment at which people were exasperated with the rest of us. And now in the great learning process that is known as American democracy, people are seeing that frustration doesn't equal good policy solutions and the president's not offering good policy solutions for those people. So I anticipate they will, in the sensible way that Americans do, recalibrate by voting in the fall. You know, I resent being called an elite. You know, I'm from... I'm from Embrace it. Embrace it. I'm from New Jersey. I went to public school. My father was an immigrant. Um, I don't speak English so good. I'm like, you know, like, give me a break. Um, I think all of us on this program are elites because we are well-educated and prosperous and the beneficiaries of the changes that reinforce the value of our intellectual contributions. And I think other folks are struggling with um, with their anxieties about change in a way that we don't. All right. Well, as usual, you're the voice of, of calm reason in all of this. Kelly, over there at the Center for American Progress, which is part of the George Soros controlled conspiracy to save <laughs> the world, um, you, periodically you have Democratic wannabes and, and public officials come in and talk about public policy. Is it unproductive to, to go after Trump on the grounds of his incompetence or incoherence or stupidity? Is that just, is that just not a track people should take and they should focus on the more positive, we can do this for you kind of thing? Um, or, or is it a natural tack to take because people are so frustrated? What's the, what's the tenor of the discussions over at your place? Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, you have to be able to call out President Trump for the kinds of bad decisions, policy decisions that he makes. Uh, you have to be able to articulate why those are bad decisions. Um, but I think that m- more importantly, you know, we need to be coming up with our own narrative about what America's role in the world should be, what the right policy solutions should be for a country that is going through a transition uh, in the world and at home. Um, And that's where I think we need to be dedicating much more of our (laughs) energy. And it's hard every day. I mean, listen, I wake up in the morning and I check Twitter and my, you know, blood pressure immediately goes up and I have to, you know, be prepared to respond to whatever this and that. You know, today it was the, the, the Putin summit. Tomorrow it'll be something else. Um, but at the same time, you know, we have to carve out that thinking space 
uh, for developing what we think about the world and, and, you know, how we think the United States should be, what we should be doing for the American economy. Uh, and I actually do, I maybe I'm naive, I might be in the Corey uh, space on this front. You have to be thinking in the positive, uh, affirmative space. Otherwise, I think we did, we will end up uh, potentially in a bad situation. Well, that 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 also makes 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 a lot of, of of sense to me. So, Rosa, as as the as the person to whom I'm you know sort of closest to psychologically here, which is to say, <laughs> in 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 the depths of despair, the thorny crown of entropy. Yeah, how how am I supposed to reconcile the fact that this is just absolutely nuts? I mean, literally every single day, all day long, what's happening is nuts. Uh, there's, you can't reconcile that. There's, you can't reconcile crazy. Um, but I do think, I mean, reflecting on Corey's comments and, and Kelly's comments, I, I think that there's a little bit of a, a short-term, long-term distinction that's worth making here. I, you know, I think Trump is nuts. Uh, I think Trump constitutes a national security crisis of, on his own. You know, he is a crisis. Uh, he is a walking, talking crisis. Uh, He's a walking, talking crisis for American democracy, uh, as well as for American national security. I think that priority number one for any sane American has got to be getting this guy out of the Oval Office. And the quickest way to ensure that that will happen uh, is probably to for the Democrats to be successful in retaking the House and the Senate in the midterm elections and then ultimately for uh, President Trump to lose in the next presidential election. And I I, I focus on the midterms because I think there's a, you know, there is a non-trivial possibility that if the Democrats uh, retake the House and the Senate, that Trump will find himself impeached. And it will certainly, at a minimum, be a whole lot harder for him if he he can be induced to wait so long uh, to fire Mueller and otherwise interfere with the various ongoing investigations into his actions. Um, so that's the short-term priority is just get that guy out of the Oval Office. Um, the longer-term priority has got to be, you know, how do we rebuild some sense of an American identity that cuts across the various political divides that are marring this country. And the problem is that I think that the short-term need and the long-term need cut in slightly different directions. Because the way you get Trump out of the Oval Office, frankly, is probably not by persuading Trump voters to vote for somebody else, right? The way you get Trump out of the Oval Office in, in the sort of nearer future is just by making sure that more people who already dislike Trump actually get out there and vote. Uh, in the next round of elections. And you do that by saying, this guy is an idiot, this guy is crazy, uh, and by emphasizing the negative. You you, you mobilize them by saying, this is an emergency, you gotta get out there and vote. Um, that, un- unfortunately, I think, in some ways, cuts against the, the need to have a longer term, more positive narrative that is more inclusive, that tries to bring in the people who voted for Donald Trump because uh, ultimately, you know, we've got to bring them in. Um, we can't just say, oh, they're deplorable, whatever. You know, we've got to say they're, they're our fellow Americans. We need to find ways to talk to them. We need to find ways to address their concerns. And that doesn't mean that we do everything they want, because sometimes what they want we think is wrong. But that means we have to find a way to have those to have those conversations. And, and I do I think that that tension between the short term mobilization need uh, to address the crisis and the long term uh, need to rebuild some notion of a positive identi- American identity 
uh, is not one that's going to go away. Well, I think that is a very thoughtful way to end this particular episode of Deep State Radio. In fact, I think all three of you have been much more thoughtful than I have been and have calmed me down a little bit. Um, uh, uh, I, I still believe everything <laughs> I believe. Um, I'm inclined to say it all the time. Um, and for that, I thank you, Corey, and I thank you, Kelly, and I thank you, Rosa. I invite all of you out there in deep state radio land to join in uh, on our next episode. We'll talk actually about a couple of these issues on that episode uh, and on ensuing episodes. And in fact, we also encourage you to play along in our game where we're giving out deep state radio paraphernalia to people who can demonstrate just how nerdy they really are. Uh, we've had a number of entries this week uh, and They've been really hard. <laughs> Some of you do, I'm really surprised, can actually leave home without the assistance of your parents. Uh, but, but, you know, you'll get a T-shirt or a mug, so maybe it's well worth it. Uh, we, uh, we love you all out there in, in Deep State Radio Land, and we hope you will join us again sometime soon. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, Kelly. And thank you, Rosa. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you. <laughs>